We're in the middle of a series called Root Cause, and it is this idea, as we continue the series, based around this idea of whatever seed you want to plant, whether it's in your life or physically or whatever, it needs to take root, and eventually then it will produce fruit in our lives. And that's the core of what the book of Colossians that we are focusing in on over the next couple months will teach us, is what are the, the seeds that we need to plant deep into our souls, deep into our hearts, that will bring about the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And we said that this book does a few things in our life, and just to catch you up on that, it, it first of all helps toil up the soul of any unhealthy practices. It, it's going to show us things in our life that like, that's just not healthy. It's also going to expose and deal, pull the weeds of misplaced hopes, things that we are trying to put our hope in that are going to fail us. But then it does a couple of positive things. It plants the seeds of righteous roots based on who Christ is and what he does in our life. And if those roots get planted in our life, then we will bear the fruit of this cultivated life. And the Apostle Paul and Timothy wrote this book to help the church learn better how to produce this fruit of righteousness. Because as much as we would want it, as much as I wish, just wishful thinking or desire for good things to be produced in my life, it doesn't happen without intention and cultivation to grow these things in our life. The beginning of our series, and if you haven't had a chance yet, there's some uh, seed packets over there, and we've challenged people to take these home and actually try to cultivate them and put them, plant them in, and see how they work and see what it takes to actually just grow some herbs like oregano or cilantro. And remember that it takes that same kind of intention in our lives to grow these things. So I started, this was week one, and uh, there was nothing there after the first week. I was like bummed, right? But this week, Katie got up one morning. She said, have you seen, your, have you seen the plants? And I was like, in the week two, there's green coming. It's, it's happening. I was so excited. And uh, I told you the oregano was going to be stubborn. I could tell. It's not there yet. But chives and cilantro, we can do some baked potatoes and have fun. Uh, with those, but but it's happening. We're we're trying to make that. And I, I look at those just those little green sprouts coming out. And I think about even in my life spiritually, there are things I've been trying to accomplish or want to grow in. And man, when you see yourself make a stride or not react a certain way or maintain peace when everything else around you is going crazy, it grows excitement, right? That you are seeing growth in your life, and that's what this book really challenges to do. The last couple of weeks, we looked at a couple of seeds. The first one is hope, the seed of hope and the roots of salvation that would then bring gratitude in our life. And then we looked at the seed of wisdom, of discovering the wisdom of Christ and of God and placing it in our life that then would grow obedience because it's the right thing. It's truth. And that obedience then brings holiness into our lives. Well, this week, we're going to move to the next section of this chapter and the next obvious seed that we need to plant in our lives. Because if we realize that wisdom comes from God and we're learning through obedience what the right kind of living is and we're seeing the result of holiness in our life, then we would desire to draw deeper into that relationship to a point of being willing to submit our lives to him. And that's where we're going to start today, learning how to plant the seed of submission in our lives. We love that word, right? We often think submission's hard or something I don't want to do. We hear that word and kind of recoil. I don't like to submit to anybody. I want to be my own boss, my own man, my own woman. 
but in honesty, that would be a horrible way to live. What if you never submitted your life to anything or anyone? It would mean that you'd be living in a constant state of rebellion and there would be constant tension in our lives. What if you never submitted to a parent growing up? I, growing up for me, I, I remember one day I was sitting at a, the dinner table and I was not a fan of like vegetables at that point. And my mom had cut up a raw tomato and put one slice of tomato on my plate. And she said, you have to clean your plate. You have to eat everything before you get up. And I was not willing to submit. I'm telling you, like I ate everything else on that plate, that tomato I stared at. And she was like, I'm going to sit here with you. And I was like, well, we're here going to be here all night because I am not eating that tomato. And she finally, she's like, cut it in half. She's like, all right, half of the tomato. And I'm like, you better keep going because I am not eating. And I, I waited her out. I did. Like, it was like 10 o'clock at night. And she finally was like, get up, leave the table and just go to bed. Like I was stubborn, strong-willed as a child. Some of you deal with strong-willed children as well, but we have to learn to submit because you think about it, even as children, right? We don't have near the perspective and understanding of the world that our parents do. The choices I would want to make as a seven or eight-year-old if I didn't submit to any authority would be horrible. What if you never submitted at school, college? What, if you never, what would you have not have learned? What truths would you have not grasped just because you wanted to be your own person? What if you never submitted at work or at home in your relationships with your spouse or, or others? What would it be in your life? It would be turmoil, turmoil. But somehow we think submission is a sign of weakness. Like we have lost a battle or we have to give something up. But here's a key idea we should hold on to. There is no weakness in submission. It is a wise choice to submit to something that will grow our knowledge, understanding, and character. It's a wise choice. It's not weak. The truth is we submit to things all the time, often without even realizing it. Right? You think about how this works in our life. You find a song that you like and what do you do? You go find the other songs by that artist. You start submitting yourself to, to what else they do. You find an author you like, your book you read. You go find other books they've written. You find a new Netflix series you like. You figure out who directed it and go watch their other series. You find a clip of someone on Instagram or TikTok. You follow them and then look up their channel or podcast and let them start speaking into your life. You find a leader at work you enjoy working for and you try to learn from them or get on their team. You find a, a preacher online that you like to listen to and you start to listen to more of them. And this is what Paul and Timothy are trying to challenge us to really think about in this section, in this chapter of Colossians. We submit to things every day without us giving as much of a second thought. Would you take a moment instead, is what this is going to challenge us to do, and consider intentionally submitting your life to, and to the following the ways to the teachings of Jesus? in order to once and for all put to death the turmoil of your life and experience everlasting peace. Why do we do this? Why Jesus? This is the key question that we take on in verse 15 through 20. They're going to give us some bullet points to remind us who Jesus is and why he is worthy to submit to, to find more of what he is, what he said, and what he's written to watch more of his life like a new episode or series, to follow as a, like he's a new content creator on social media or like a good boss that we want to learn from. What we will see is that this seed of submission changes the way we view authority. It changes the way we view authority. 
That's another word we typically don't like in our life. Authority, submission, obedience. But when these are used in a wise way, they actually bring amazing fruit into our life. And this is why Paul will go further and challenge us not only to make Jesus one of the things we submit to, but to make him the preeminent thing we submit to in our life. So let's read, uh, it'll be on the screen, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and then we're going to dig into that just a little bit. It says this, he, he's talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that is everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When you read that, it's like somebody is introducing somebody to give a speech. It's like a bullet point. Here's the highlights of their life. And so who is Jesus? Let's take a look at this for a minute and see who he actually says Jesus is. And the first thing that they say in this book that Jesus is, is he is the image of God, right? Colossians 1.15 is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, what he's speaking here is Jesus is God in human form. The unique thing about Christ wasn't that he did miracles or had these masterful teachings. It is that his nature was the full expression of God's character in human form. In human form. It was, it was everything we want to know about God in a tangible form. God has revealed himself in different ways over the course of history. And each of those prior revelations before Jesus was not a full representation, right? He, he showed himself in the law, but the law was an inanimate representation of God. What was given to the Israelite nation, that law, was a beautiful representation, but it was inanimate. You couldn't deal with it. You couldn't touch it. couldn't talk to it. The prophets that came, the prophets were a deluded reflection of God. They were men or women speaking on God's behalf, but they were not fully themselves the character of God. Jesus was the exact image of God, reflected in human nature within the context of history. And the idea we have to grab here is this. Jesus is not just a representation or a reflection of God, but the full revelation of God. It's a huge claim and hugely meaningful in our life if we believe that claim. But it's not the only claim he makes here that he is the image of God. He says in verse 16 and 17 that he is the author of creation. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, in him all things hold together. I love that last part, that through him, in him, all things hold together. Jesus was not created by God, but was part of the creative process with God. This is important to understand because it helps us to rightly embrace the authority of Jesus. Jesus is not subject to God the Father, but part of this creative force that brought all life into existence. Thus, Christ has authority over all creation. Not only does he have authority, but it says he holds all things together. He is the life force that sustains each of us and the entire part of creation. 
And what does that mean? It means that we can know him and have intimacy with him because he knows every fabric of creation. He knows every fabric of our lives. He knows the depths of every man and woman's heart. He is not this absentee creator. He is intimately and intrinsically involved in the daily moments of this world and in our lives, so much so that he came and lived among us. And here's the key idea with this. Jesus is not part of creation, but he is the creator and sustainer of all things. We, we often think about creator, but I want you to focus on that word sustainer for a minute. Because what, when you think about that word, when, you, when do you need sustaining, right? At your lowest levels. The levels where you just feel empty and you need filled back up. And I love the idea that Jesus was not just dangling salvation for us at the end of our lives one day, but that he actually works and sustains us through our lives. Whatever may come, highs, lows, he is sustaining us there. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Then he says there's a third thing about Jesus you should know, and it's this, that he's the head of the church. He says the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn, that everything might be preeminent. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We sit here as a church, even though we meet in a school, we sit here as a church body, but Jesus founded the church. It wasn't something that was before him. It wouldn't exist without him. Too often today we approach church as if we are selling Jesus to people. Like we've got this great product that you should try. So we advertise him, we market him, and we try to convince people to give him a try. Or sometimes we treat Jesus like he's a prize to be won. Come to church and get you some Jesus. He'll make your life better, right? We do these kind of things. These tactics, though, make Jesus feel gimmicky or lacking. Like we need to upsell him so that people will be interested. Like he isn't enough just by himself. Instead, he needs this army of salespeople to come up with new and exciting ways to market Jesus to the world to keep him relevant and trendy. I don't know if any few of you are here old enough to remember when Coke changed their formula to new Coke. And like it, old Coke was like, it was, Pepsi was taking over the market and they're like, new Coke, better than old Coke and better than Pepsi, right? Well, everybody tried new Coke and you know what they did? They hated it. They hated it so much that new Coke went away completely and they went back to old Coke. Now the story behind that, that that's supposed to be is that they did that on purpose to like make people think they want to long for what was. And it, got, it made Coke trendy again. It made people excited about old Coke. They didn't use the word old. They used original after that. But it was this marketing ploy to re-energize a brand. And sometimes we think we have to do that with Jesus. We've got to re-energize him. We've got to make him something that he's quite not, just so he's appealing. Well, Scripture teaches something completely different teaches that he is the head of this church, head of this assembly. Those with a common goal of living out our salvation and reconciling ourselves to God, he is our head. We now get to be part of his body, reflecting the character and nature of Christ to the world we interact with. He's the one that's setting our lives up, telling us how to live, instead of us telling him he needs to change a little bit to be more trendy for this generation. We aren't on his launch team or his salespeople or his marketing firm. 
We are part of his body, his life and mission of showing the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of God to this world. Here's the key idea. Jesus is not a product or prize of the church. He is the power and purpose of the church, which is vastly different when we think about who he is. Then the last thing that it says here about Jesus and why Jesus is because he is the savior of the world. Verse 20 says that through him, it came through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He came to reconcile, to save the world. This in itself is a ridiculous statement. How could one man who lived over 2,000 years ago be the savior of all mankind, past, present, and future? The influence of great men and women that lived less than 200 years ago have faded and lost impact. How could someone that lived 2,000 years ago still be transforming lives and culture? This can only be true if what we stated previously is also true, that he is God, he is creator, and his, he is the ultimate purpose and power behind this life. But what does it mean that he's our savior? Because him being our savior is the key to our willingness to allow the seed of submission to be sown in our life. The idea of he is savior, that is the shovel that moves the dirt to plant the seed of submission in our life. Am I even in need of a savior, you might ask? My life isn't too bad. My circumstances aren't too awful. My character isn't that flawed. Often when we talk about Jesus as savior, we teach it as something like this. Jesus is the savior from our circumstances, right? He'll just, Jesus will give you a better life. We teach it like this, Jesus is the savior of your character. He's going to make you a better person. Or we teach it like this, Jesus is the savior of our future. He's going to give me a home in heaven. The salvation that Jesus offers is something vastly deeper than all of those. Those things are byproducts of salvation. A better life, a better person, a home in heaven. But it is not the purpose of salvation or even the real need that our, we have of salvation. The salvation that is written about here, talked about in this chapter, has two primary purposes. The first is reconciling our debt to God. It's satisfying God's wrath towards sin that we willingly embrace in our own rebellious form by not submitting, right? We talk about when we don't submit, what does it create? Turmoil. I know better. Brings turmoil in our lives. And Jesus' life and payment and sacrifice is, the, is reconciling that debt that we all carry. But it's also as a positive thing of restoring the peace. It restores the peace with God so that we might daily experience the utmost pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope in this life now and for all eternity. True salvation is not learning how to live a better life. Jesus has no desire to improve you. His desire is to transform you, to change you. And authentic spiritual transformation happens from the inside out. It will transform your soul, body, and mind, your emotions, your will, your pursuits, your relationships, your perspectives. The key idea is this. Jesus is not a life coach or a boss to be pleased. He is the purchaser and provider of our salvation. He's not just a good guy to tell us how to live better. He provides and has purchased our salvation. So that's who Jesus is. That's the willingness. That's what opens up the ground to say, this is somebody I'm willing to submit to. If we believe those 
and try to put those beliefs into our lives. So let's say we believe those and we place that other, I'll submit to Jesus, then what root begins to develop in our life? And in Colossians 1, in the next couple of verses, we see what it develops. It says this in verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. It says, and you, to start with right there. Right? So he's talked about Jesus and you. Let's talk about you now. What were you? What's going to change in your life? It starts, that's what starts us first off. What does it mean for you? What does this mean on how you view yourself in light of all this? It means this, we are not the author of our own salvation. It says, once you were alienated, but he reconciled. He reconciled. We are not the author of our own salvation, as much as we would like to be. We're not. We are not the perfecter of our own character. He says he did this in order to present you holy and blameless. As hard as I try, I do on my own will, my own power, I am not a perfect character. I'm not. I fell. I fell as a father. I fell as a husband. I fell as a friend. I fell all the time. It is only through the transforming power and the work of Christ in me that I see legitimate change and new perspective and new wisdom come into my life. But also means this. We are not the, sor not the source of our own hope. He says, if you continue in faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, right? So we see we are not the author we are not the perfecter of our own character. We're not the source of our own hope. And this helps us understand what this root is. It is then the root of humility that grows into our life. And humility, I want to give you an understanding of what humility is, because often we think of humility just as I have to think of myself worse, right? Humility is not a poor view of oneself, but it is a proper view of oneself. It's not thinking of yourself less it's just thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less, some people say. It's not a poor view of yourself, but a proper view. When we embrace the idea of submitting to Christ as the image of God, author of creation, head of the church, and savior of the world, it helps us to also have a better view of who we are and who we are not. And that's good news. It means you don't have to carry the weight of all these things on your shoulders. You don't have to perform up to a certain standard to get the degree or the promotion. You aren't the one responsible for salvation and sanctification. Instead, your role is to submit to the one who is and allow the roots of humility to grow deep in your life. Think about it for a moment. What if tomorrow you were instantly put in charge of something you felt tremendously unqualified for? You woke up and as much as maybe you would enjoy today, you were mayor of this city or you were president of the United States, all of a sudden you were the engineer in charge of the next shuttle launch at NASA, or you walked into an operating room, you woke up having to walk into an operating room ready to perform a brain surgery. Like you think that's cool until you're actually in that moment and you feel so unqualified. The feeling would be overwhelming. And without humility, a proper view of ourselves, here's what we would do. We'd barge in and say, well, I'll figure it out. My best, my best effort's going to be what I can do. Or I'll just 
you're going to have to learn to deal with me instead of me dealing with this situation. I'm sure the patient on the table would appreciate that kind of view if you were that brain surgeon. No, but hum- with humility, we'd stop and say, I'm not qualified to do this. I'm not qualified to run this. I need to reach out to my friend Michael, who has worked in politics for years, and say, I need help. I need to call my friend Andy, who's a brain surgeon, and say, I don't know what to do. Please come and help me, right? I, I need to reach out to those I know, that the, and I know they know better than me. They're more equipped to handle the situation than me. And the key idea that we hold on to is this. There is a God, and it's not me or you, and I'm not him or her. It is not us, right? And this is a beautiful thing. When we hold on to this, when we realize all the things that have opened up the ground to plant the seed of submission, right? That there is an author of our salvation, an image of God, the creator of all things and sustainer of all things, a savior of the world. And it's, it's not me and it's not you. And it's a great thing because we know God is those things and can, we can connect, connect directly to him through Jesus. This seed of submission and the roots of humility as they grow in our life, they're going to produce something. And it goes back to verse 20. It says is what it's going to eventually produce in our life. It says, through him, the recon- as we reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, he is making peace by the blood of the cross. The fruit in our life is peace. Peace begins to flourish in our life. This is the natural byproduct of submission and humility. I don't have to worry anymore. My anxieties drain away and peace expands in my life. Just listen to these verses. You'll think about Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. Matthew 6, don't be anxious about anything. And it says, then don't worry even about your life. First Peter says, cast all your anxiety upon him. John says, don't let your heart be troubled. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give you. This theme of peace, elevating and anxieties and worries diminishing is the natural byproduct of submission and humility in our life. I want you to know this. As much as we'd like it, peace is not the absence of trouble in our life, but it is the absence of turmoil in our life. Turmoil is a state of uncertainty, confusion, and disorder. It's when you and I get our life out of order. We put ourselves in a position of God, creator of the world, author of salvation, hope of the world, savior of our souls. We aren't these things. But when we try to act like them, turmoil comes and bubbles up in our life and it destroys our peace. Some of the most peaceful moments I've ever experienced in my life have been in the midst of the biggest moments of trouble in my life. Because that's when peace shines. It's not in the moments of ease. It's in the moments of trouble when I experience the most moments of peace. Because inside of my heart, the turmoil has been quieted because of submission and humility. I was a few years ago, uh, I took a transatlantic cruise. We left from uh, uh, Barbados and we were landing in Portugal. And the whole way across, I'd read about this cruise and people were uh, saying, you got to be, you know, sometimes the ocean, it's not so fun. You know, the waves come and we had had a smooth cruise the whole way. It was 14 days. The last night we were coming into port in Portugal. 
And as we started coming in, the captain said, uh, there's going to be some rough waters as we port typically is here as you come into off the main or into the mainland, uh, coming out of the deep ocean into this area. And uh, he said, just be prepared. It's going to be rougher than anything we've had so far. That night at dinner, I think there were about four of us because the boat was going like this. Everybody else was in their cabins, I think, having a, a moment around the porcelain throne. And, uh, you know, we're trying to eat and drink while the ship's going like this. And people are, you know, you guys are, people are nervous. You think we're going to sink and all that stuff. And I was like, the captain said he was all right. Like, he was expecting this. And uh, as it got worse, and people, he even came back on. He was like, guys, I want you to know uh, this is, even though it feels bad, I've experienced much worse. Uh, and so don't, don't get, you know, upset. So that night, you know what I did? I went and laid in my bed as best I could because about every five minutes it would come and I would come off my bed and, and come back down. But honestly, it felt troubling. But in my heart, I kept telling myself, he said he got this, right? He said this wasn't that bad. And the next morning, I woke up in port in Portugal. And we were all right. We made it. And it was this beautiful reminder to me that for me, if it was up to, if I was the only one on that boat and I was having to steer that thing, I'm in trouble. The ship's going down. It's not going to be a pretty sight. But knowing there were skilled, experienced hands at that wheel and a reassuring voice reminding me that it's okay, it helped me stay at peace. And that's what this is all about. Surrender is saying, take your hands off that wheel. You don't need to drive that boat. The waves are too big for you, but there's somebody who can get you through it, can push you through it and keep you safe and bring peace into your life. This seed of submission produces the root of humility, which bears the fruit of peace. It should give us all a And my question for you today as we finish is this. Where are you trying to be the savior of your own life or the life of others? Because I'm telling you, that's where your peace is getting choked out. When you think, this is up to me, it's only me, it's all on my shoulders. Or I've got to do this for this person. Or maybe you're trying to be the savior of your kids or your your spouse or friend. You don't need to carry that. And you realize there is an author of salvation who is the image of God creator and sustainer of all things who is the savior of this world we bow your head and close your eyes with me in this moment just here there is a savior better than you there is a provider better than you there's a someone who loves better than you there's someone who forgives better than you There is someone more righteous than you. And that person is Jesus. And if we submit to him, he will bring order and peace into our lives. But it takes a step of faith. It takes a willingness to open up the ground of your heart and let that seed be planted. In these moments as we close through song, Would you allow this name and thought of Jesus, just the truths that we've talked about with him, would you allow it to permeate your thoughts? Maybe in your own mind you pray and say, God, I want to know more. I want to understand more. I want to submit. 
God is faithful to allow his, the Spirit of God to come to you and speak to you and transform your life. This name, the simple name of Jesus, however it was said originally in whatever language it was spoken in, there's beauty in it because the name brings hope. God, we are yours today. Whether we want it or not, that's the beauty of it. But it's in our own submission that we experience this beautiful peace. So God, help us to allow this name of Jesus and this work of Jesus, this seed of submission to be planted deeply in our hearts today. Allow it to change our outlook, our perspectives, and bring peace.